0: Well, open your Bibles,
1: if you would, to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17, remember there are three instances of complaining in the wilderness before Sinai, three instances of complaining before Sinai, three more after Sinai. So this is the third of the first set of three, which appear in Exodus 15, 16, And 17, and then the second three appear in Numbers 14 through 17. Kind of a matching set. Israel in the wilderness, what do they do? They grumble. So Exodus 17, here is their grumbling. The most famous of all their grumblings. Then all the congregation of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in Rephidim, But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people murmured against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand the rod with which you struck the river, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, that the people may drink. So Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Let's pray. Father, deliver us from Massa and Meribah. We ask your forgiveness for trying to test you and see whether you're present or not. And We ask that you would help us to see the example of our forebears in the wilderness, and that you would give us the grace to submit, to learn, to know your ways, to enter your rest. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember the three instances of testing, the first one was about water, back in chapter 15 where they grumbled at Elam, or they rather grumbled at Mara. There's no water. And then chapter 16, they grumble about food. And then here in chapter 17, they grumble about water again. Water, food, water. Really basic stuff. They're not complaining that the Wi-Fi is slow. They're not complaining that the tent has a hole in it. They're complaining about things that we regard as kind of necessities. I really need water out here in this baking desert. I really need food or I can't go on walking 15 miles a day. But is God buying that? Does God say, does the narrative encourage us to say, these poor people were so mistreated by Moses and by God who didn't provide for their needs? Yeah, no. That is not the perspective of the narrative. The perspective of the narrator, which is the perspective of God, is that complaining is not right, even about these incredibly basic needs like food and water. So think about the last time you tried to justify your whining. You probably weren't in a place where you could literally die of thirst in a day or two. And yet... Even that grumble, God says, is not acceptable. So God taught Israel with the first complaint that if they would obey his rules, he would give them the 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees kind of life, the blessed life of Elam. In the second test, he said, I will give you manna. I will feed you with bread from heaven. You just have to obey me and particularly trust that I will provide for you on the Sabbath day. And here in chapter 17, God tests his people, right He tested them last time, He tests them again. They fail this test completely. They utterly fail. They more or less ended up passing the previous two, where God said, "Okay, I'll give you a chance, I'll give you water, I'll give you food, and we'll see if you can keep my rules about it." And they did, more or less, but here, they completely bomb the test and so god goes out and suffers himself to be smitten in their place to provide them with water the message here is incredible israel israel fails so god takes the hit in their place That's what happened at Massa and Meribah. So we look at this under basically two headings, quarrel and test. Quarrel is the meaning of Meribah, test is the meaning of Massa. What happened with the quarrel? Well, they come into the wilderness of sin and there's no water to drink. It's according to the commandment of the Lord, verse 1 tells us, God told them, go over there where there's no water. God brought them into this situation where they would have nothing to drink. He brought them in because He cares about something other than our comfort. God doesn't exist to make us happy, and we say that almost every day. We especially say it to other people when they're unhappy. But here it is again in black and white. God said, go over there to Rephidim. There's no water there. People without water get very grumpy. And these people certainly did. They fought with Moses. And was God afraid of them getting grumpy? If you say, God, if you do that, I'm going to throw a fit. How much does the Almighty scared? How much does he say, oh, no, not a fit from Caleb? Oh, I couldn't have that right. God is not afraid of of our fits. If we say, God, if you do that, I'm going to be very, very upset. What does God say? <laughs> I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I told you to go to Rephidim. Now get over there. Yes, I know there's no water there. Go. So the people go, and they fight with Moses. Right? It's easy hard to pick a quarrel with God. Moses is standing right there. He's a little easier to pick a fight with. And so it is. It's a little hard to have a bone to pick with God, so we find somebody else, dislocate that quarrel with God onto, I'm mad at my boss, I'm mad at my spouse, I'm mad at my erring church member, I'm mad at whoever it might be. And they find Moses and they pick on him, and Moses gives them the reasonable question, why are you trying to pick a fight with God? Don't fight me. I didn't bring us to Rephidim. This is God's doing. And the people don't disagree, but they continue to try to pick a fight with Moses. They go to our predictable response whenever things are not going our way, which is, God, why? Why did this bad thing happen to me? whether it's something very little or something very big. I remember one time getting into my car and I fumbled my keys and they fell right outside the door just under the car where I would have to get all the way out of the car to, to fetch them. And the words popped out of my mouth before I could eat. God, why did you do that to me? I said it. And that's what people say here at Rephidim. God, why? Why is it that you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Apparently they're not yet so thirsty that they can't talk. And they complain, and they want to know what God's reason is, and God, if the reason isn't good enough, again, what's the implication? We're going to be very, very upset with you. People say that the issue here is God's faulty providence. He led us into a situation that is bad for us. God, you messed up. And God says, No, I don't owe you comfort. No, I didn't mess up. You messed up. No, actually, God doesn't say that, does He? God says, I didn't mess up. And you didn't mess up either, but you're about to. The people hadn't done anything wrong to get to Rephidim. They obeyed God's command and went to Rephidim. And that too is a hard thing for us to swallow. I didn't do anything wrong, and I'm here where things are terrible. If it was my fault, I would at least get it. If I had left the main body and wandered off into the desert and now I had no water, I wouldn't blame God. I would blame my own stupid self. But God brought me where there's no water and now I'm angry. The ultimate quarrel here is between the idea that God owes me comfort and the reality that God is seeking his own glory. You have to learn to accept that you can do everything right and still end up waterless in the desert. That's a hard thing to accept. I parented right and my kids hate God. I followed Dave Ramsey's principles and I'm broke. I ate right and I'm sick. I exercised right and I'm fat. There's all these things where we get angry at the Lord because it seems like I did it right and you didn't come through and now this bad thing has happened. I voted right and my country is going down the tubes. That's what happens at Rephidim. I'm in a bad spot. Things are going wrong. God says I didn't do anything wrong but he also insists that he didn't do anything wrong. And Israel can't handle that. That makes them furious. They want to go kill Moses, as if that's going to bring them water. And yet, as we'll see, that is actually kind of the right idea. Oddly enough, that idea that sacrifice is at the heart of this. Somebody has to take the hit in order for the problem to be solved. But they refused to accept that they had no right to be angry at God. It's not our fault, therefore it must be God's fault. And they couldn't wrap their minds around the idea that it was not their fault or God's fault. That they had done the right thing, and God had done the right thing, and yet the outcome was still bad. This happened to Adam. Adam didn't do anything wrong, he got a serpent. God didn't do anything wrong, though he allowed the serpent. And the outcome of the serpent being there was awful, to say the least. So it is with Israel, and so it is with us. You can do everything right and still be in a terrible situation. So Moses cries to the Lord and says, What do I do? The people want to kill me. How do I deal with them this time. Moses needed help. And so God offers help in an absolutely stunning way. God tells Moses, get your stuff, take your staff, leave the main body, go ahead of everybody, bring the elders, and bring your rod. The rod of God that parted the Red Sea that turned the Nile into blood. Bring that. And then God says what he's going to do. Behold, verse 6, I will stand before you there on the rock. That's the first stunning thing. God will stand before Moses. Now think about Elijah. How does Elijah introduce himself all the time? As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand. That's kind of his signature phrase, and he says that a lot to Ahab, to the prophets of Baal, to whoever will listen. I stand before Yahweh, God of Israel. And what does he mean by that? I am one of his servants. You picture the throne room, and the king sits in the middle, and he's got a number of servants standing in strategic places around the room, ready to go and do whatever he tells them to do at any given moment. The guards are standing there, the messengers are standing there, the scribes are standing there. The courtiers are standing there. They're all ready to serve that king. And the king is sitting down. He's not going to get up and go dashing out of the room because he forgot his post-it notes. No. That's the servant's job. Elijah stands before Yahweh God of Israel. But the God of Israel comes to Moses and says, I will take the servant's place. I will stand before you. How can God say that? Not, Moses, come over here and stand before me, but I will stand before you. God takes the lower place. And then he says a second stunning thing. You shall strike the rock. Now God is standing on the rock. Moses strikes the rock. How do you know God is standing on the rock? Did the pillar of cloud and fire descend on the rock, such that in order to hit the rock, Moses is whacking through that pillar of cloud and fire? Not totally clear exactly what this looked like. But the implication is, and of course we're told literally in the rest of Scripture, that the rock was Christ, that in hitting the rock on which God stands, Moses is hitting God. God. God says, it's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. But I will still take the hit. Now, this is totally, totally different than the previous two testing scenes. Where Israel was learning to obey God. And they did. And then they got water and they got food. And in this one, Israel doesn't learn to obey. God says, you're disobeying so I'll take the punishment. Moses, come, hit me. God stands before Moses. It's almost as though Moses comes up and smashes his staff into the pillar of fire and lives. How can God have the humility to go and stand on the rock and be smitten? But he did. That's what happened at Massa and Meribah. God himself consents to be smitten in order to provide the water of life for his people. The resonance with the crucifixion is only too obvious. Right here, before they ever got to Sinai, God made it as blatant as it could possibly be that he is the one who takes the hit so his people can live. He passed the test. What was the test? Verse 7, Is the Lord among us or not? Was this God's idea to take us out into the wilderness? Was this really what he wanted us to do? And the answer is yes, God is among you and you know because he was smitten to give you water. The stuff you're drinking right now is evidence that God is among you. Why is Massa and Meribah so famous? It's famous because God consented to be party to the test this time. We try to test God all the time. And every once in a while, he sits down and takes that test. And when he does, right, he passes with an A+. God was willing to take Israel's test. He passed. He proved that he was among them. And he did it at a cost to himself. He was really there. He was really committed to their welfare on his own terms. That's why Massa and Meribah are so famous. And of course, Psalm 81 tells us that God was really testing them the whole time. Psalm 81. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. You called in trouble, and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. God reveals his secret... Yes, I took your test. But even in taking your test, I was testing you. Did you learn anything from the manna episode in the previous chapter? Did you learn to obey? Above all, did you understand that the reason you're alive is because I will give my life so you can live? God was testing Israel back. He passed the test. Israel failed the test. And hence, it's reverberation throughout Scripture. Massa and Meribah stand to this day as a lesson on what not to do. Meribah is a place where God consented to their test, consented to be struck, gave his Himself for them in a certain pictorial sense. And yet... He says then in Psalm 95, I was angry with that generation. I passed their test and they didn't learn. They didn't know my ways. Your fathers tested me. They proved me though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said it is a people who go astray in their hearts. They do not know my ways. What does god mean by knowing his ways what is he saying the people didn't get it right, some some of the rationalistic commentators quoted an account by this british officer who said i was out in the desert there in the sinai region and we were running short on water and our bedouin guides said oh no big deal and they took us over to this hillside and said put in your shovels there So we started to dig and it was just dry sand and then about three shovelfuls in we hit this little clay wall and it popped and water gushed out. That's what happened. Moses took his staff and he just whacked in the right spot and unleashed the water that was already there. And that's roughly the explanation that Israel adopted. They did not know God's ways. They didn't comprehend the idea that God consented to be smitten so they could live. They didn't know God's ways. They didn't understand how he handled this. They thought, presumably, that it was just, oh, Moses left. Moses found some water. Okay, well, Moses, we won't stone you anymore. Thanks for the water. And so God rejects them and says, No, you can't come into the promised land. Uh Uh-uh. You don't have a clue who I am. So what's the message for us? It's to know God's ways. To understand that when things are bad, and you don't think it's your fault, it's not God's fault either. And yet, if He saves you from that bad situation... You need to understand, ultimately, salvation means that somebody took the hit in your place. Israel didn't wrap their minds around that. They didn't know His ways. They were still at the level of saying, I don't even know whether God's here. I think God might have abandoned us. Is He among us or not? Pillar of cloud, pillar of fire... Optical illusion, I, I don't know whether that's really God. So don't let yourself get to the place where you say, I don't know if God's with me. I don't know whether this has a good ending. I don't know whether the death of Christ is relevant to my situation. It is. It is. That's the message of Massa and Meribah. Don't test the Lord, but know that He passed the biggest test of all when He gave His Son so you could live. And that that is relevant, that He is present in every situation. Know His ways as the one who gave His life, who submitted to be the servant and die so you could live. The water of life is yours free of charge because God passed the test. And He's with us right now, so drink that water, but don't presume on the goodness of the Lord who died to supply it. How do you drink the water of life? You worship God. You pray to Him. You listen to His Word. You ask for His Spirit, who is the water of life. And you recognize that all these things are yours because Jesus died. That it's not some kind of natural provision that has nothing to do with God. That God works through natural things, but ultimately it's a gift from Him at the cost of His own life. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the invitation to come and freely drink of the water of life. Forgive us for wanting to quarrel with you and test you. We pray, Father, that we would not be a Massa and marabah people, that we would know your ways and therefore enter into your rest. Thank you that you rested from your works ever since the beginning of the seventh day. Help us to enter that rest. Not to test you, but to know that you are with us and that the benefits we have, the good things we have, We have because Jesus died so we could live. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.